2: Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the November 15th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974, striving each week to amplify the voices of the LGBTQIA2S communities. I'm David Hunt in Raleigh, North Carolina. This week, we have a COVID-free buffet of stories, celebrating the first meeting of the Manachine Society on November 11th, 1950, Veterans Day 2021 on November 11th, Intersex Awareness Day on October 26th, and Intersex Day of Remembrance on November 8th. In 1996, a group of intersex people and their allies traveled to Boston, Massachusetts to denounce nonconsensual infant genital surgeries at the annual conference of the American Academy of Pediatrics. The protesters were dismissed as a fringe voice of dissent, but not all doctors saw them that way. Tonight, we continue to raise our collective intersex awareness with another TTV, Talk to Vosh, entitled Hit on Their Pocket.
3: Hi, this is Vosh Bodhi, and welcome to another TTV, Talk to Vosh. I take you around the world to meet interesting people in and affecting the LGBTQI communities. This is the third episode in the ongoing series called The Intersex Interviews, where you get to meet people connected to the intersex community, each with their own unique perspectives, and stories to share. Today, we're going to be focusing in on the medical community and find the religion that is the most supportive of intersex and transgender people. I invite you to settle in as we explore the I in LGBTQI right here on TTV. Talk to Vash. Today, I'm taking you to Pakistan to talk to Sana Nassib. She is a physician, a life coach, and she facilitates intersex awareness seminars. She is also a wife and a mother. I'd like to introduce you all to Sana Nasser.
4: Hello, everyone.
3: So, Dr. Sana, you do a lot. Have you always wanted to be the person that you are?
4: Yes. Actually, I believe in the fact that every soul has a purpose. So, this is just my way of contributing to the community, to the society that I live in and for my children to see how people come together and how we need to help and give back to the society.
3: How did you become a physician?
4: That was entirely by choice. My father always said, you know, do what you feel like doing, what clicks. And it was healthcare that I really wanted to get into. I did consider dentistry for a bit, but then this was my calling. Like uh, I wanted to help people and I wanted to do medicine.
3: So as a physician, what is your focus?
4: I'm a trans-aware, trans-friendly physician, which is very rare in Pakistan. And my office space is a safe space for everyone, be any gender, any sex, it's for everybody.
3: What is the general climate there for the LGBTQI community?
4: Pakistan is one of those very few countries who still criminalize LGBT, not T and I and Q, uh, huge change happened in our law in 2018 when the transgender person protection act was passed this law is the basis for all the awareness raising seminars that i'm able to do because now the people know that everybody who comes under the transgender umbrella they have equal rights as men and women and they're still thriving and striving to make it better but this is where I come in the picture and my awareness raising comes in the picture.
3: Will you tell me about your journey towards discovering the intersex community?
4: It was just one brave question from my son. I'm a mother of two children, a son and a daughter and my son was seven back then and he asked me why do we have transgender people on the road? They beg and I didn't have a proper reply for them. I was embarrassed and i was like okay the society doesn't accept them now in pakistan we have hijra community a more apt way of saying is khwaja sira community that's the urdu word for it less derogatory more acceptable term so the khwaja sira community they have their own family system like guru chela system the gurus take care of their chelas so i had to understand how are they living how are they thriving begging, sex work, and paid dancing. It's illegal to do all three. Nobody ever questions who renders their services. Nobody questions that. But every time they're found doing it, they can be taken away by the law enforcement agencies. So when my son asked this, I didn't have a proper reply for him. And he went on to embarrass me further by saying, Ma, you're a doctor. Don't you know what's up with them? It's just a woman with too much makeup on. I was like, if this seven-year-old can think of them like, a woman with too much makeup on, why are we still labeling them, separating them from women, not giving them the rights that women have in my country? Wash it open to my eyes. I told him, I will get back to you in three days. I went back to my embryology and anatomy and physiology. I opened up my books again. I found out that in medical curriculum everywhere gender and sex are not taught separately. So when we're talking about a body, we're talking about whether a certain body has certain body parts. We're not talking about their perceived gender or the experienced gender. That's when my journey actually started as an intersex educator because I had to educate myself. I became so curious that I started looking up intersex activists, and knowing them personally, and then relating it with the way our system is, I figured that I had to bridge the gap. I was able to talk to my family. I live in a joint system, I have 10 family members living with me. So I had to talk to them that this is what I feel my calling is. First, I had to sit them down and make them understand the difference between intersex and transgender. First the family, then the rest of the world, yeah? And they could see the passion in me that I am going to do this. You know, I am going to stand up and I'm going to tell the whole world, it doesn't matter who you are, everybody is different and unique.
3: That's really beautiful. And what an amazing kid you have.
4: Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, one sentence from him, he said, Mom, we are the society. We have to accept them. We need to know how to. He even helped me in the very first seminar that I did. There was a joint doctor's conference, and I went there with family, my husband, my father-in-law and mother-in-law, and my kids. And my son helped me give out the feedback forms. And everybody was astonished, like, okay, the whole family is helping her. How does Uh this happen? You know, it's unheard of.
3: I was going to talk about gender later, but you've already jumped on it. So how would you define gender?
4: For me, it's the perception of who I am or the perception of who you are in terms of masculinity and femininity. I see it as a spectrum. It's not a box that you're in.
3: How do intersex people fit into your definition of gender?
4: Intersex people can have any gender, depending on what their perception is. So an intersex person could say, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a non-binary person, or I'm agender. It is their right to say. So this is one thing that Pakistan is way ahead of, when compared to the rest of the world, that we have the law that says you can self-identify.
3: You are listening to TTV Talk to Vash. I am Vash Bodhi, and I'm here speaking with Dr. Sana Yasser, facilitator of intersex awareness seminars in Pakistan. How would you define what it means to be an intersex person?
4: When a person is born with a reproductive or a sexual anatomy that don't seem to fit the typical male or female bodies, that's an intersex person. Usually I look into what chromosome combinations they have, what kind of hormone balance they have. They will always have a reason to be born intersex. In biology books, we get to learn that XX is female and XY is male, but we're never told that there are more combinations that thrive and live healthy lives. For instance, XXY, so the Y gives you certain body parts that are known to be male body parts. But the extra X gives you extra estrogen, which is known to be the female hormone. The birth announcement is of a male. The child grows up like a male child. Later, because of the extra X, they have more estrogen than the testosterone. So they can develop breasts. They may or may not experience a different gender. So by 12, 13 years of age, they will get to know, oh, something is wrong with the child. Now, wrong is not exactly wrong. They were not aware. That's when they actually go to the doctor first time. If the doctor is not aware how many intersex conditions are there, they would either refer them to an endocrinologist or a hormone specialist. Okay. And otherwise, they will send them to a bigger hospital where this child and the parents can be catered to.
3: The medical community describes intersex people as having DSD, which is disorders of sexual development. What are your thoughts?
4: I don't see them as disorders. If you look at the word disorder, it just means a different order. But it's stigmatized so much that people assume that you're talking about a disease. Something is wrong. Something needs fixing. It's just variety. You know, you would not say a red rose is the only rose that that should be around. There are so many other colored roses. Do you know there are 23 chromosome pairs on an average that a baby gets from the parents? But then there are other babies who don't get that average. So we have to look at the entire spectrum, not just the average. People use the words normal and abnormal. I discourage it. Now when I talk to people, I tell them, please start using common and uncommon. Every time you hear the word abnormal, you're like worried. You're like, oh my God, what happened? Now what do I do? If you say... These are some common intersex conditions. Does it look like I'm talking about diseases? No. I'm talking about varieties in humans. It's about time we realize those variations. We acknowledge them as equals. Okay, we are what? 7 billion people in the whole world. Even the twins don't have same fingerprints. So everybody is unique. And uh, the beauty lies in this uniqueness. See, you don't necessarily have to see a medical label as a disease. It is there for learning purpose. Everywhere I see Kleinfelter, I would know that there is XXY. These are the features that the child will have. These are the things that will happen at puberty. So this is for me to be able to learn and render my services to you. If I don't have a nomenclature, how will I study them? How will I learn them? How will I memorize what uh, goes on with them? What management I need to prescribe or advise? So I need to say this out loud, Vash, that the medical community is not out there to hurt people. They don't have any vengeance. They're not out there to disrupt a happy, healthy child. No, the intention is positive.
3: Some people do believe that the medical industry is out to hurt them with surgeries. What medical intervention do you think intersex babies require?
4: None in the beginning. None. I have actually advocated for delaying such surgeries to a point where the child can be consciously aware of what will happen to their body if they go through the surgery, how to take care of themselves post-surgery, how to give consent. What is consent? Is the medical practitioner trying to influence you? I'll tell you the norm here. Under two years of age, children are subjected to certain surgeries. For instance, congenital adrenal hypoplasia is the most common intersex condition in XX babies in Pakistan. Congenital adrenal hypoplasia causes the clitoris to grow much bigger than what it's supposed to be in a female child. People here don't recognize it as an intersex condition. They think that it's a girl with a big clitoris that needs to be cut. I find this barbaric. As a physician, I advise against such surgeries. These are called clitoridectomies. Earlier, this was also known as FGM, female genital mutilation. And the whole world knows that everybody is against female genital mutilation. It has stopped for uh, regular women, but not for intersex children. In the past three years, I've spoken to a lot of pediatric surgeons and they all tell me somehow it's the parents who insist on such surgeries. Now, my point is, If we are taught how to counsel such parents properly, they would not demand such an injustice. I don't want my suggestions to be a hit on their pocket, but my services to my client, who's that baby who can't even speak for itself. I talk about this a lot in my seminars that we need to offer services that are non-surgical and reversible. And because this is my perspective, And it's not a bad one. (laughs) I am loud about it. And people want to hear this. They come on board immediately. They're like, okay, wow, you need to train more people about this. Not just healthcare providers, people in the law, other people, general people.
3: What are some of the misconceptions people come into your seminars with about intersex people?
4: They think that transgender and intersex are the same. They think that people will go to hell. They also think that if it was such an injustice to do surgeries on intersex people, why are they in practice? Another misconception is that not being able to reproduce is a major, major curse. Like everybody is just born to reproduce. So I cover all that in my seminar.
3: What's one of your favorite memories from one of your seminars?
4: I got a standing ovation at another joint doctor's conference, because once I was done, there were some questions posed by a very senior endocrinologist of a religious nature, like what religious grounds do you have for saying such a thing? I had some fatwas. With a fatwa, you can actually do a certain action or commit something based on that fatwa. So. I luckily had the fatwas with me back from 1988 and 1999, which actually say that Islam allows aligning your perceived gender with the body parts. And I could not find any other religion saying such a thing. So I found my religion to be the most tolerant in such matters. And once I said this, this gentleman wanted to see. I actually showed them the fatwas and they were very impressed. They were like, okay, she's done her homework really nicely. So after he was satisfied, you know, everybody just got up and clapped. That was one of those memories that I really relive again and again.
3: Dr. Sun, you're really amazing. How did people get in touch with you?
4: Social media has made life very easy. And I would love for people to come forth and uh, get in touch with me. If they think their medical community, no matter wherever in the world, I would love to educate them and show them the lens of tolerance that I use. If the medical community knows how the body works, there will be more research. That is how we can make the system better.
3: You've been listening to TTV. Talk to Vash. My guest has been Dr. Sana Yasser, intersex and trans-friendly physician and facilitator of intersex awareness seminars. To reach Dr. Sana, contact her on Instagram or Facebook at Leap for Intersex and Trans. To help end infant genital mutilation, please contact your local representative and let them know you demand intersex protections. For more information or to see this interview in its entirety, please visit justfosh.com dot wordpress.com thank you for listening i'm vosh bodhi and remember if you have a story to tell ttv talk to vosh
2: we'll be right back with a moment from the eyes of tammy faye right after this quick break so don't go away
5: it's time for who said that on this episode of the rainbow minute as a youth, he watched adult-only films at the local drive-in with binoculars. As a director, writer, and producer, he is known for his often off-color films set in Baltimore, Maryland, where he grew up. Combining a gay sensibility with memorable characters in outrageous situations, he shocked audiences everywhere. His cast of characters includes Patricia Hearst, Mink Stoll, Francine Fishpaw, and Divine. His bizarre films gained traction with Pink Flamingo in 1972. He said... I don't think it's my best movie, but God knows the day I die, it will be in the first paragraph of my obituary. Who said that? It was John Waters, who now enjoys respect as an author and filmmaker. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson.
6: Hello, I'm Stephen Fry. The great Oscar Wilde once said, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. That's why it's imperative that we stay informed. So pull up your ears. An excellent way to do this is by listening to Southern California's longest running radio program for the gay and lesbian community, IMRU.
1: Hey guy, hey guy, let's date, let's date Cause we're born, something special, and that's great. What I feel for you is groovy So let's enjoy it I think your sister's pretty But let's boy it, boy it I saw, I saw You wink, you wink wink. And life is so much better Now that we're in sync sync. I really like your smiling
7: face My
6: beach house has a fireplace We'll watch reruns of Will and Grace Let's the cake
2: Welcome back. I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. In the new Jessica Chastain-led film, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Baker's groundbreaking 1985 interview with a gay Christian pastor living with AIDS takes center stage. His name was Steve Peters, and a few weeks ago, IMRU's Michael Taylor Gray tracked him down for his own interview.
7: The Eyes of Tammy Faye, recreates Tammy Faye Baker's historic 1985 interview with Steve Peters. Now, this was the first time a televangelist gave an affirming interview with a gay man living with AIDS. Welcome to IMRU, Steve
8: Peters. Thanks very much, Michael. I really appreciate it.
7: Tell us how the interview with Tammy Faye Baker came about.
8: Well, I had been sick for, with AIDS for three and a half years at that point and I was doing an experimental chemotherapy that was the notorious Serum and Trials. I was patient number 1 on that. In the midst of all of that craziness, I got a call from a friend who was the executive director of the AIDS Project in Atlanta, Reverend Ken South, and he said that Tammy Faye Baker's producers were looking for somebody for her to interview, somebody who had AIDS, a gay man with AIDS, and they couldn't find anybody in the entire southeast or east of the U.S. who wanted to go on the show and talk about it.
7: PTL at that time, the Praise the Lord Ministries right. was huge huge in it cable. The,
8: it was the largest televangelist network in the world and the fourth largest network in the United States. They
7: were located in Charlotte, North Carolina <laughs> right at the time. Right. And you were based in Los Angeles at the That's time. That's correct. Tammy Faye, in the interview mentions that you were having these uh, chemotherapy treatments and that you were perhaps too ill to travel, and that's why you were not in studio there at PTL. Is that the truth?
8: No. I mean, it's sort of the truth. What happened was that they sent me two first-class plane tickets to fly to Charlotte, North Carolina, to be on the show live and in person. I needed assistance because I was so very weak from the Suraman treatments. So they sent me those tickets, and as we were headed out the door to the airport, the producer called and said, I'm sorry, but Tammy is sick and we're canceling the interview. I was very disappointed. Uh, They said to send back the tickets, and we did. Then the next day they called and said, Tammy feels better and wants to do the interview after all." all. So we're going to do it by a satellite hookup, the first ever in the history of PTL, the first time we've ever done a satellite hookup. And we want you to go to a TV studio in Ontario, California. We will interview you from there. So that's what we did. The truth came out much, much later, and that was that the producers and Tammy and Jim were afraid that I would not be treated well if I showed up at Parodage USA, and indeed that the camera crew might not work if I came into the studio. There was that kind of thing going on all the time back then. I was interviewed any number of times on television and radio in the alley beside APLA, AIDS Project Los Angeles, during those days, and... At dinner parties where they knew me, they would, they would serve everybody on China and they would serve me on paper plates. They would be very careful to throw everything out with gloves on uh, even to make sure that they didn't contract HIV from touching my paper plate.
7: This interview that you did with Tammy Faye, I'm watching you and I can see in your mind like what's going on in, in yeah. the teachable moments, and the moments where you can sort of land a certain phrase or a notion or a concept to help right. dispel right. myths, you know, and stereotypes.
8: Both about homosexuality and about AIDS. And about the
7: disease. Yes. You said Jesus loves me just the way I am. And you follow that right up with, Jesus loves the way I love. That's right. Let's talk about that.
8: That was not planned. I had not planned to say those exact words. They just came out. And once I said them, I thought, should I have said that? And then I thought, yeah, I should have said that. And Tammy was a little taken aback by it. And she, I think at that point, said, this is a terribly emotional interview for me. And said, I want to put my arms around you. And I said, I want to put my arms around you. And she said... Have you ever had sex with a woman? Why do you think that Tammy Faye asked you if you'd ever
7: had a sexual experience with a woman?
8: Well, I I think that partly it was due to the fact that there were rumors about Jim Baker having gay liaisons. And I don't think that she was unconscious of that. And I think that she was perhaps working out issues in her own marriage in asking me about what made you think you had to be gay? And maybe you just haven't given women a fair try. And...
7: What do you think is behind that kind of curiosity
8: in general? What's... Oh, in general, I'm sure she was she was trying to get at the rumors uh, or the the myths, I should say, that homosexuality is just that it's undeveloped human beings that haven't really tried heterosexual, who are afraid of heterosexual sex. It's not like Brussels sprouts,
7: you know, right. like, well, honey, just try them. You might like them. Exactly. You just haven't given Brussels sprouts a fair try.
8: Exactly. Exactly. Well, <laughs> what's that about? And I think that, you know, to be fair, I think that they were the right questions for her audience. I think she had planned to ask those questions before I even came on camera and met her. Yes,
7: because there was no animosity in terms of where she was coming from. No. I mean, looking at it now, the perspective that we have and being able to have the hindsight and look at this interview, it's really fascinating to see. She was really speaking from her heart. She really wanted to do some good that day.
8: I I encountered a very loving, caring, supportive person.
7: And that's how you responded to her. Yeah. 1985, here you are talking about gay men and parenting. Right. You introduced the concept of gay couples and adoption in right. 1985. Correct. Los Angeles, talking to Charlotte, North Carolina. Right. And Tammy Faye asked you a question about adopted children of gay couples and the influence in, in the impact of the homosexual lifestyle
8: uh-huh.
7: on their sexual orientation. How did you respond?
8: Oh, I responded by saying, well, my parents were straight. Why didn't I turn out straight? You know, and, and I had all my teachers were straight and I still didn't turn out straight. So it's not a matter of what you do in your bedroom, in the privacy of your bedroom, that determines a child's sexual orientation.
7: Right. And then she also asked you, what made you think you were a homosexual? What do you think all that comes from?
8: Well, again, I think it, I think that a lot of it had to do with her understanding her audience and that her audience would want to know all those things because they were all things that I think the average evangelical heterosexual probably thought. And I think that she was trying to dispel the myth. I think that she was more knowledgeable about homosexuality than she was letting on.
7: But it also gave you a unique opportunity. I mean, it was unbelievable in that moment. As influential as PTL was at that time.
8: Yes. Yes, absolutely.
7: And to have a 25-minute interview.
8: I know. (laughs)
7: That never happens.
8: I know. It was extraordinary. And interestingly, in the three minutes before the interview began, We talked on via the mic. I mean, I could not see her during the interview. She could see me, but I had no monitor to see her.
7: Oh, that's I didn't know that.
8: Yeah, I was just looking into a camera in this dark studio with the lights right on me and and I just, in the first three minutes before the interview has started, she was so sweet and caring. And she said, you know, uh, this is going to be on Tammy's house party. We decided it, it was probably better to go on Tammy's house party than on the PTL flagship show. Tammy's house party is the Phil Donahue of the PTL network. So we don't have to talk about Jesus. You know, it's not about religion, but it's about, it's about getting facts out about social issues.
7: I thought it was fascinating when she asked you about did you feel feminine inside uh-huh. you know the ideas of, the, of homosexuality and masculinity and femininity right. and she made a point of it saying that in the gay community some men look like a homosexual others do not and then she was very adamant about and you you don't look like a homosexual
8: you don't I know I was so surprised she said that <laughs> and because... I, if that would
7: be me I would have been like oh honey I know well
8: <laughs> I, th- I was tempted to say something like that like well you haven't seen me prance around in my high heels have you um, and... And, uh, but I didn't. I restrained myself. I thought I am, you know, when in Rome, you know, when in Charlotte.
7: But how would you answer that question today? If I was to ask you today, well, you don't look gay. How, <laughs> how would you respond to that to somebody? If, well, if I would she probably asked you that say, oh today,
8: honey, right? <laughs> oh boy, am I gay? There are lots of masculine gay men and feminine lesbians, and uh, it's not a matter of of uh, how masculine or feminine you are as to who you want to go to bed with. She also said, what made
7: you feel that there was no hope for you to be straight?
8: Well, I, you know, I left that kind of hopelessness behind a long time ago. That there was a time in my life when I hoped that I could be straight, when I was still wrapped up in my self-internalized homophobia in my closet. But I liked being gay, and I, I hope that I conveyed that to her.
7: You mentioned that your, your faith and your, your orientation right. came together, I think, around the age of 23. Correct. So up to that point, you were trying to fit into yes. society's notion of, well, you need to be straight.
8: And I was very self-conscious about being a sissy and a fairy, which is what all the boys called me in school. From the time I was seven, I remember being called a fairy and a sissy. I remember when I was like 12 and 13, I was so afraid of people thinking that I had limp wrists that I would wear rulers up my sleeves to train myself to keep my wrists stiff. I mean, that's internalized homophobia. That's total fear. I had no idea that there were other homosexuals in the world until, you know, I was a teenager, probably.
7: You know, Tammy Faye several times throughout the interview talks about the gay community. Right. And just hearing those words together, a community. Uh Uh-huh of gays and saying it in such a loving way yeah. into to her audience was so
8: important. Right.
7: And she, she asked you, particularly because of the fear surrounding AIDS at the time, was the gay community kinder to you, Steve?
8: Well, yeah. I, that's what I found at MCC was a lot of very loving people and, and I felt cared for. And and, uh, and then later on when I got AIDS, it was the women of MCC, particularly my neighbor, Lucia Chappelle, who rallied all these lesbians to come helped me out when I was so sick with AIDS in the 82 and 83, 84 and 85. If it hadn't been for them, I don't know what I would have done.
7: Well, Steve, you were meant to be here for a good long time, and that's why you're here today. Yeah. That's not an
8: accident. No, it's not indeed.
7: You were able to share things like that yeah. in this moment on PTL.
8: Well, you know, and, and one of the things that was, it's a context in which I went into the interview was that Lucia and I had sat on my bed watching PTL shows, uh, particularly the flagship show with Jim and Tammy holding forth, we had watched that and laughed uproariously at their antics and, and were stunned by their theology and, and their conservatism and all of that. And so when I was invited to go on the show and I agreed and I told her, she was like, oh my God, do you know what you're getting into? And I said, well, maybe it's exactly what needs to happen. Uh, and when I came home from the interview. After the interview, uh, Lucia came over to talk, ask how it went. And I didn't think I did a very good job. I thought I had said the wrong things. And I, you know, I wish I'd put it that way. And I wish I hadn't said that. And I wish I had said that.
7: That's that that committee in our head. Oh, my (laughs) God. The
8: committee in my head just went crazy nuts afterwards. I was so embarrassed about the interview. And I remember telling Lucia, I'm so glad that nobody I know will ever see it
7: if that wasn't the understatement of the, of the century, because in my watching it and using this as the foundation for our conversation today, yeah. it's just profound to me the concepts, the myths, the stereotypes, and the, and the opportunities that, that were there in that moment that you yes. just
8: planted that seed yeah. but you planted so many seeds and they've grown the good thing is, is that I've had plenty of opportunity to speak publicly about being gay and about having AIDS, AIDS Project Los Angeles put me out there in the media right away because I had a lot of experience in talking to the media. As soon as I registered as a client, they said, oh, let's put you in front of the TV cameras, even if it is in the alley. <laughs> right. You,
7: you handled it very, very yeah, well. I just, yeah. I am so proud to be a part of this community with you. And, you know, the work that you did, you saved lives that day. You saved a lot of lives. You opened up some eyes. You opened up a lot of hearts and you gave Tammy an opportunity and you recognized her platform. Yeah. You told her so. Yeah. That you have a very important platform here. That's right. And you did it with such love and you, it was such a teachable moment. And you were a great teacher in that moment. Oh, You're also you. a willing student.
8: Yes, absolutely. Even though I felt like I w- I'd done a not very good job, I did feel like there were special moments in it. And later, Troy Perry would tell me things like, you know, when you said that you thought having sex or having a relationship with a woman would be disrespectful of the woman, he said that was of the Holy Spirit because I had never said anything like that in my life. And yet I knew that when I was in Rome, I should talk like Romans. And then the last 10, 15 minutes of the interview, she wanted to know about what it was like for me having AIDS. And that was a great education for her audience as well.
7: What is the message that you hope that people get from the eyes of Tammy Faye, and in particular, from that moment that still resonates in your life?
8: The message I hope people get is that God loves you just the way you are. That's the last line of the film. She quotes me directly in the last line of the film. She turns to the camera and says, Jesus loves you just the way you are.
2: Thank you so much for coming, and thank you for the work that you do.
8: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Don't go
2: away. We'll be right back to talk Mattachine Society and Veterans Day after this quick break.
9: One million dollars for a notebook. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Alan Turing is credited with breaking the Nazi codes during World War II, which helped shorten the war and save millions of lives. In April 2015, one of Turing's handwritten notebooks sold at Bonham's Auction House in New York City for $1,025,000. It dated back to 1942, when he worked at Bletchley Park and detailed his work on the foundations of mathematical notation and computer science. Turing's notebooks and papers have been entrusted to mathematician Robin Gandy after Turing's death. Gandy deposited the papers at the Archives Center at King's College in Cambridge in 1977, but he kept one 56-page notebook because of a deeply personal message written in the blank center pages, which he wanted to keep private. Turing killed himself in 1954 after being sentenced to hormone treatments to cure his homosexuality. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Charles McWigan.
8: Yes, it's true. You could have more friends, a better job, more money, and enjoy the kind of life you've always dreamed about. Homosexuals in America are better educated, travel more, and enjoy a higher standard of living than their straight counterparts. If you've ever sat alone watching television on a Saturday night or felt like your life was going nowhere, maybe homosexuality is right for you.
10: Hi,
1: this is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to I Am are You. You.
2: Welcome back, I'm David Hunt, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. When IMRU's executive producer came aboard 26 years ago, there was only one person on the top of his interview list, but he soon found Harry Hay didn't even need questions to share his answers when he tracked him down to his memorabilia-filled little house in Hollywood.
8: Before Stonewall, and now years after Stonewall. Harry Hay retains his vision that we as gay people have particular characteristics that contribute to society in a special way. I asked Harry, what in particular has held us back?
6: Certainly up to Stonewall. We all lived under such fear. We lived in fear every day of our lives. Here in particular, for instance, here on the Pacific Coast, we were always aware of the fact that any time you went to meet various people in places that we knew about that were supposed to be safe for us, or we would go to a bar that would be friendly to gay people on certain nights of the week, you never knew when you stood up to the bar whether or not the guy who was being friendly with you on your left or on your right wasn't a stool pigeon. A stool pigeon either from the police or simply to blackmail you. You didn't know that was a chance you took and you also knew something else too which other people didn't recognize and that is that we were people who lived under stigma and when you live under stigma even in the united states you're a second-class citizen and you are guilty until proven innocent without a shadow of a doubt everybody else in the united states assumed that they're automatically innocent until proven guilty without a shadow of a doubt not us because we would be being accused of having done things And we wouldn't know who the accuser was, and we didn't know what we were accused of. I asked Harry
5: about his place in the modern gay movement.
6: I'm generally known as the um, first person to bring up the issue of gay and lesbian people as being a cultural minority a p- cultural, political minority. And I did this deliberately in 1948, 1949, because I suddenly realized that if we were going to organize ourselves, we have to organize ourselves based upon the principles of the First Ten Amendments, of the Bill of Rights, and ground ourselves politically in this country. And in order to do that, we needed to recognize ourselves as a cultural group. And it was so radical an idea in 1950 and 51 that in 1953, the Manishing Society split up And they split up, and when they split up, they threw me out as a radical because I had this absolutely outrageous idea that we were a minority. Nobody wanted to have anything to do with that. They just wanted to show that that they were exactly just a slight sexual variation. Otherwise, we're exactly the same as everybody else. So I got thrown out because of that outrageous idea that we were a minority. Nineteen years later, when Stonewall comes along, everybody assumed that we had always thought we were a cultural minority since day one. So then 19 years we had changed completely in their thinking, but at the beginning it was the other way around. I asked Harry, what makes us unique as gays and lesbians? I can remember that when I was finally accepted on the track team, up until that time I had been told I was a sissy and, and uh, get away from them and they didn't want anything to do with me, or if they had to do with me I would get picked last to go on the baseball team and then I got put out in right field where the boil never went. But, Eventually, you know, I always just say that sissies like me, there's, there are times when you just want to be wanted, and you do almost anything to get on the team and be wanted, and that doesn't happen very often, but eventually you get to the place where maybe you found that you could do things on the track team, but I was sort of the despair of my track team because I didn't like to beat out anybody. I didn't like to win over somebody. If I were relaying, for example, and my competitor was behind me, I'd like to stop and help him.
8: And so he did. And so he does. This has been Steve Pride talking with Harry Hay at his home in Hollywood. Thanks for listening.
2: On November 11, 1950, Hay, along with Rudy Gernreich, Dale Jennings, Bob Hull, and Chuck Rowland, held the first meeting of the Mattachine Society in Los Angeles. Harry Hay died October twenty-fourth, two 2002. And finally, a WBAI chat with Sergeant Leonard Matlevich to round out coverage of this Veterans Day.
0: Hello, I'm Ronald Gold and this is Gay Alternatives. On March 7, 1975, Technical Sergeant Leonard Matlevich, a 12-year Air Force veteran with three tours of duty in Vietnam and a fistful of medals for meritorious service, walked into the office of his commanding officer at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia and presented him with a piece of paper. It said that Sergeant Matlevich was formally declaring himself as a homosexual and announced the intention of fighting the automatic discharge that such a declaration was sure to bring. Discharge proceedings were indeed begun, and Sergeant Matlevich's much-publicized appeal is now before military court. Should he lose in the military, he will take the case to federal court, where, assisted by such organizations as the American Civil Liberties Union and the National Gay Task Force, he hopes to get a ruling that at long last will guarantee the right of gay men and women to serve in the armed forces of the United States. Leonard Matlevich is my guest this evening for a discussion. And Lenny, you come from an Air Force family, don't you?
10: Right. My father spent uh, 32 years in the Air Force. And, again, you know, everything that I am and everything I hope to be, I owe to the United States Air Force. (laughs) I'm serious. (laughs) I was born on an Air Force base. I graduated from an Air Force high school in England, and all my education has been through the United States Air Force. And once again, what I've done turning myself in, I owe to something connected to the Air Force called Air Force Times Family Magazine. They publish an article on homosexuals in uniform, and it was a very inspiring article. Uh, although the article in the beginning said they didn't think gays should stay in the service, it was the most
0: supportive article I have ever read. I remember reading it myself. Right. It was a whole big magazine section that entirely was taken up with descriptions of rather happy uh, situations of gay people who were lovers in the service, and right. and uh, all about how uh, the armed services in many other countries uh, had no trouble accommodating gay people in them and so forth and so forth. Wasn't that the case? Exactly. That was a revelation to you, wasn't it? Revelation?
10: Well, it was, yes, but it wasn't because I had already come out. Uh, I already started going to gay bars when the article was out. But it, it was my first positive media that I've ever read about homosexuals. I, was, I, First of all, coming from the Air Force Times, I was floored. I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. So was I when I read it. <laughs> <laughs> and in the article, it mentioned a man by the name of Dr. Frank Kameny. So one night I was just sitting down watching television. I had a brainstorm. Why don't I call Dr. Kameny and just find out exactly what's happening in the gay community? So I called him.
0: Frank Kameny, for those of you in the audience who don't know, is a pioneer uh, gay liberation person who was the founder of the Managing Society of Washington and a member of the board of the National Gay Task Force and a person who has pioneered in legal action against uh, discrimination against gay people. And in that article, it mentioned the kind of work that he was doing.
10: Right. So, one night I was watching TV, and I uh, brainstormed to call him. I called uh, Long Distance Information in D.C., and I said, I know his name's not going to be listed. I was just shocked when it was. So, I was talking to him on the phone. I asked him, I explained my situation. I didn't tell him I was gay, though. I played straight on the phone to him. I told him that... um, I was a tech sergeant in the Air Force, and I was a race relations instructor, and I talked about homosexuality in the classroom, and I was just interested, for my students' sake, not for my sake now, but for my students' sake, what was going on in the gay community, what legal battles were going on. He explained all these things to me, and then I said to him, well, exactly what type of military case are you looking for? And he said, well, we're looking for a military person, man or woman, who is career, who is willing to come forward public and say, yes, I'm gay, but I want to stay in the armed forces. And I said to Dr. Kameny, well, uh, I might have an individual in mind for you. I'll talk to him and find out. Of course, I was talking about myself all this time. And luckily, I I was stationed in Florida at the time, and luckily the Air Force sent me TDY, which is temporary duty, for two months to Virginia, which was 200 miles from D.C. So during that period of time, there was an opportunity for me to get to Washington, D.C., to discuss things with Dr. Kameny, and I met with the ACLU lawyer, David Adelstone, and at the time they said, this is a big decision on your part, you've got 11 years in, think about it. It took me a year to
0: think about it. Well, tell me some of the things that you uh, thought about during that year.
10: Well, they told me that they thought in order to win, we'd have to go public. And I thought about family. I thought about, well, who's going to hire a faggot? Who's going to hire a queer that's known throughout the country? What type of work I was going to do when I got out? Oh, just millions of things. My straight friends, would I ever have a friend again? How would my gay friends treat me? Would I ever be allowed to go home to my parents again? Would they want me?
0: Just With all of that negative stuff, how did you decide to finally do it?
10: That's a very difficult question. It's, I guess, just my nature that I see something that's wrong and being in the classroom day after day after day, reading Air Force literature that was saying equality for all, uh, one Air Force uh, Air Force regulation in the 30-1 says that those who discriminate by fact or by inference are not fit to command or supervise. I believe this stuff, and the more I read it, the more I believed in it, and I felt as if here I am in the classroom teaching all these things, yet I am being a hypocrite. I felt that there was much more than... For 30 years, I lived my life for my parents to make them happy, and I had to start living my life for myself and make me happy.
0: So you just upped and went after that year. Was there some particular incident that made you decide that just suddenly to go, or what happened? Well,
10: not really. It was just um, teaching equality and justice over and over again, and for the black person, for the red person, for women, for every minority you could mention— in that classroom, I was a fire and brimstone teacher, you know, equality and justice for him, equality and justice. But when it came to the gay person, I only went halfway. The more I only went halfway, the more I knew I had to go the full measure all the way. I have no regrets whatsoever. I would do it again and again and again and again. So you went to Washington and you got the, got the, piece the letter? Of paper. And I still hadn't made the decision to do it. And I didn't make the decision to do it until I gave it to my supervisor. He was he walked into the office and he was standing and I said, Um, Captain Collins, you should sit down. He said, Why? I said, Well, I got something I want you to read and I think you should sit down. Well, he wouldn't sit down, and I handed him the piece of paper. And he read it, and then he said to me, Well, what does this mean? First of all, well the expression I wish I had a camera just to film his face. It was something else. The expression on his face, his eyes must have got uh, they were, well as big around as footballs, or baseball, He just (laughs) looked at it. He said, what does this mean? And I said, it means uh, Brown versus the Board of Education, equality and justice for all. Mm. That's the the court decision on uh, segregated schools are unconstitutional. I said, this is, it, I am a race relations instructor, and I'm doing my job. I see something is wrong. It has to be corrected.
0: And here we are. But they did decide to discharge you, didn't they?
10: Well, I'm not discharged yet. The discharge date has not been set. My squadron commander decided that I should be discharged for the best interest of the Air Force. I requested a board hearing. The board will meet on the 16th of September, and a decision will be made then. It will be reviewed by higher authorities. I have very, very little hope of winning whatsoever in the Air Force. I have great hopes of winning in the courts. Because the American Psychiatric Association has ruled that homosexuality is not a perversion, it's a preference. Therefore, if the psychiatric community of this country grants us citizenship, which they have, who can deny if they it? They have to us? the right to do it. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're right. But without that decision by them, as long as they said that we were sick, well, they, they, it, they it are it legally in, gave in any the case prepared le- to support your case exactly.
0: in, in, a, in a formal statement. They exactly. have done which so in, have, previous, in previous cases. Exactly. They have. So that uh, you have a good chance of winning. But now I'm I'm really interested in, um, less in the as we okay, uh, the suggested, legal part okay. in the legal part of, uh, well, than in what, let what me tell you what's happened to your head since uh, okay. all this has happened to you.
10: The reason they don't want gays in the service, I think they feel this is a Christian country and the Christians in this country simply would not tolerate gays being armed forces with their little boys and, and you know corrupting their minds. The yeah, reason? but what
0: you're doing is just reciting the whole list of lies and foolishness. that, oh, that and you want uh, the, that, that the truth have, behind uh, the
10: lies the, and foolishness? Uh, right. I don't know what the truth behind the lies and foolishness is. I really don't.
0: Well, in any case, I I just hope, of course, that you win your case, well, because I think that discrimination is an abomination. Okay, you're just, right. There's no. I just wonder uh, what the consequences of opening up a bastion of our patriarchal society to the revolutionary uh, potential of gay people uh, will be and maybe uh, if in a in a, in a while it, you've won and you're you're in it and you've begun to change even more than you have certainly you've come a very long way in in, uh, in two or three years
10: you're right and I have a very very long way to go as a human being i, I I'm just on the threshold of Something I, right now, cannot even comprehend that's ahead of me. I have no idea where my mind is going to go from here.
0: Uh, well, our time is just about up, and I want to thank you very much for being with me this evening.
10: Believe me, Ron, it was my pleasure.
0: And my guest today was Air Force Sergeant Leonard Matlevich whose test case will hopefully guarantee the right of gay citizens to serve in any job for which they're qualified, including jobs in the armed services. <laughs>
2: Matlovich died on June 22, 1988, in West Hollywood, California. His tombstone, meant to be a memorial to all gay veterans, does not bear his name. It reads, When I was in the military, they gave me a medal for killing two men and a discharge for loving one. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm David Hunt. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook, at IMRU Radio. And if you're interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. And you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also, catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. I'm David Hunt, and you can find me at tellmedavid.com. So long, and thanks for listening.
1: My mama told me when I was young We were all born superstars She rolled my hair, put my lipstick on In the glass of her Wine. There's
5: nothing wrong with loving who you
1: are She said, cause he made you perfect, babe So hold your head up girl and you'll go far Listen to me when I say no matter gay, straight or be lesbian, transgender life I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to survive No matter black, white, or baby shoulder or Aureum made I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to be brave How beautiful am my way, cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself and regret, just love yourself and you said I'm on the right track Baby, I was born this way Don't be a drag, just be a queen Don't be a drag, just be a queen Don't be a drag, just be a queen Don't be Give yourself prudence and love your friends So I can rejoice the truth In the religion of the insecure I must be myself, respect my youth a different lover is not a sin, believe capital H I am I love my life, I love this real good end Me amount no matter get straight or by, lesbian, transgender life, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born to survive. No matter black, white, or bay, shoulder, or mate, I'm on the right track, baby. I was born to be brave. I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby. I was born this way. Don't hide yourself and regret, just love yourself and you said, I'm on the right track.
5: Baby, I was born this way
1: Don't be a drag, just be a queen Whether you're broke or evergreen your black, white, bass, chola, descent your Lebanese, Lebanese. your Orient. Whether life's disabilities Left you outcast, tees. Rejoice and love yourself today Cause baby, you were born no this way No matter by straight or bi Lesbian, transgender life I'm on the right track, baby I was born to survive No matter black, white, or bass, chola Or Orient, made I'm on the right track, baby I was born to be how beautiful am my way, cause God makes no mistakes I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way Don't hide yourself and regret, just love yourself and you said I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way Oh, there ain't no other way, baby, I was born this way Baby, I was born this way Oh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Right track, baby, I was born this way. Oh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Baby, I was born this way. Oh, there ain't no other way. Baby, I was born this way. Right
3: track, baby, I was born this way.